Herd mentalists, hear me. So much news, so much exciting stuff going on. Next week, on Tuesday the 15th of April, Sydney time, between 8am and 10.30am, so this would be Monday in the US and the UK. If you were to add Adam Reeks on Skype, so just go to your Skype, click add, type in my name, no space, no dot, no hyphen, and set your status to Raygate, then you may well receive a call from Ray and Raylene. They're going to be operating a 495 a minute hotline where you can call in and discuss your problems at Living Waters and hopefully come to some sort of logical, clear, rational solution for you. So that promises to be good fun. So pretty straightforward. Add Adam Reeks on Skype and be around near your Skype, preferably with a headset in a quiet room, and you'll get a phone call. What else is on the boil? Well, I've been working pretty hard on something called the Herd Mentality Project. It's a life-size cow. It's quite big. It's built out of 100% recycled materials, fence palings, wooden beams, and a sink. You can head to my Twitter profile, at Adam Reeks, and have a look at some of the photos as it's been being built. I put it to popular vote on Twitter, and it seems that an auction is going to be taking place for such a prized, beautiful garden ornament. It can be a garden in itself, a little garden bed. You can fill it up with soil and plants and plants. Or you can just fill it, put a plug in it, and call it a bird bath. But I'll be auctioning that with a large portion of it going to a charity, and I think it's a charity that is quite worthwhile. So keep an eye out on my YouTube channel for that. As I'm becoming more organised, I'd like to thank some new tithers to the show from the last few episodes. So we've got Claire, Andrew, Carl, Wayne, Peter, Ryan, and Jamie. These wonderful people have contributed a few dollars a month. It doesn't have to be very much. It could be two, five, ten, whatever you feel like doing to support the show. And as I get more authors and uh, contributors to the community to come on, I'll be selecting from the pool of tithers to give away copies of books. It happens later on in this episode. Good things are happening from the money raised from the show. We donated $50 to Pastor Ryan Bell, who appeared on a recent episode. Uh, we also donate 10% of the money from this show to Kiva.org to help women in developing nations to get on their feet and improve their education. This episode has some wonderful guests on it. I really do hope you enjoy listening to it. All the best, guys. Take care. I'm yeah. glad I have your blessing. Blessing's a funny word, there, Matthew. <laughs> yeah. It was carefully selected. <laughs> Welcome to the Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, at Adam Reeks on Twitter, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality down the line with me. I've got a couple of fine heathens, an acquaintance of the show, Jen Chadbourne. How are you, Hello. Jen? I'm doing well yourself. Extra good, extra good. Your Twitter handle at JL underscore Chadbourne. You were previously on a show when we had some military people involved. Atheists in Foxholes, episode 17, if I recall. Oh gosh, you've got a better memory than I. <laughs> <laughs> and also laughing in the background there, we have at Kevin McGill with one L, so good they had to keep it short. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing good. It's, it's all good, although I'm still looking for my last L. Who knows where it's at? What's gone on there? <laughs> I have no idea, but um, I'm sure that um, maybe other people have a single L in their name. So if that's the worst thing that could happen to me, then what can I say? Mm. <laughs> so you guys have both got an interest in sexual abuse in the military. What's the story, Jen? My passion behind this is derived exclusively from personal experience. If I may, I'd like to basically give a background of what my situation was, if you don't mind, Adam. Go for it. I enlisted in the military in summer of 2009, and one year later, uh, summer of 2010, I was on a plane and headed to Iraq toward the end of Operation Iraqi Freedom. My job within the military, I bounced around a lot between different military bases. One such place, being rather lonely the entirety of the deployment, and with my husband's go-ahead, I found myself in a relationship with somebody who outranked me pretty significantly, but uh, at that point, I honestly didn't care. He was a warrant officer from Ogden, Utah, and we carried on rather happily until one night we were found out, and this male squad mate that found out, basically, well, to put it bluntly, he 
forced his way into my room. He grabbed me by my shirt collar and slammed my the back of my head against a wooden wall locker and dazed me for about a moment. And as I'm getting to my, trying to get up to my feet and assess what the fuck just happened, like, did he really just slam my head against a wall? He's coming at me and looming over me and he's he's coming right for me and I'm I'm panicking and afraid and uh, were it not for he left the door open and a male NCO walked past the open door and saw him about to do something I am convinced that had that NCO not come past the door this individual was quite likely about to rape me and the reason I say that is because for weeks after this incident he was following me places and he was asking me very in a appropriate questions like what diseases the warrant officer gave me if I was carrying his baby and just coming to my door for no reason at odd hours all the time, just relentlessly harassing me in a very, very inappropriate manner. And of course, my chain of command, I reported all of these incidents, everything from him grabbing me and throwing me into the furniture to him following me to the questions. I reported to my lead NCOs, to my OIC, which is officer in charge. And at the culmination of this, my own commanding officer, I told him in person, face to face. And apparently, because what I did was against the rules, essentially they felt like I deserved everything that happened. So I've been struggling ever since. Kevin, is this sort of story news to you? This sort of story is not news to me, really. Um, at least it hasn't been within the last uh, two years. We seem to have a society, especially when we're talking in the context of the military, where men of this caliber, of this sort, seem to look for opportunities or reasons uh, to prey upon women for whatever reasons. And apparently this gentleman that Jen described is a predator, and he looks for people that, in his mind, probably uh, might not have a valid reason for retaliation. The whole big thing uh, to me about this, Adam, is obviously Jen was in a consensual relationship. Maybe it didn't line up with the military, but regardless, she had been sexually assaulted by this other person, and there we have the problem. And it seems like the military lost focus there. So let's get a little more context on what it is you do, Kevin. Where are you based, and what are your aims? Okay, well, uh, basically, I'm here in California. I'm here in Fresno, California. Background-wise, uh, sexual assault has been something that has touched my life through friends and even family, family members who have been sexually assaulted ever since I was a young guy in the military myself. And I think emotionally, it was one of those issues that continued to play a role within my life, affected me, continued to outrage me, to the point where a couple years ago, it was like nobody wanted to talk about this. Everybody was, it was a uh, an issue that continued to elevate, but nobody wanted to talk about it. And I guess within myself, emotionally, it continued to burn within, within my heart, my spirit. And I just decided, you know what, forget it. I'm, I'm going to just begin to share my feelings. And I began to do that through my blog writing, gathering facts and things of that such. I have been a, I guess you would call an advocate for women's rights as well as an advocate against sexual assault for quite a few years and so my goal is to just give a voice to this issue I want people to know I want people to know what is going on because it's heartbreaking I would just like people to continue to be aware and realize that our institutions they need to be held accountable for these sort of crimes mm. the institution of warfare which is what the military is, exactly. should, should provide some sort of safe haven for those exactly. serving in it. You shouldn't have to feel at risk when you're think, within the compound walls. So, yes, go on, Jen. I think part of the problem could be that there's a lot of people that feel maybe there's a disconnect between what goes on in the military and what goes on in the regular old Joe civilian sector. But I think the reason why this hasn't grabbed as much constant public attention as it really should is because of that reasoning that perhaps a lot of people feel that, oh, well, that's the military's problem and they need to be able to fix it. It doesn't affect me. Well, military personnel don't like to think about things like this, but eventually they do leave the military. Either they ETS out of the military, they retire, they are medically processed out, and they are taking all of their issues 
with them, to include PTSD in cases like this, to include tendencies of violence toward one another in some cases. And I don't think that people understand that, is that no, the military is not necessarily a whole separate realm of society. It does reflect a part of us. The military has a tendency to attract a certain demographic of people, yes, but they are still American citizens nevertheless, and when they get out, they are bringing everything good and bad with them back into the civilian sector. And I would challenge anybody who thinks that that's not part of the problem. If you can't afford to support your veterans, then you can't afford to go to war. Certainly not. I would I would agree with that. So why is all of this falling on deaf ears within the military? And particularly your case, Jen? My honest opinion, they don't think there's a problem. And also, I can blame right-wing Christianization of the military for a lot of it, but only so much. But they honestly, in my experience, they don't see a problem with punishing female soldiers who step out of line in such an extreme capacity because they honestly think it's okay. And the scary thing is, is in my experience, is that I know for a fact that my chain of command that let this incident slide, they have daughters of their own too. And it keeps me up at night because then I'm stuck thinking about, well, what if, I hope nothing bad ever happens to them, but what if? What if they knew what kind of people their fathers were really like? It's amazing. Kevin, your thoughts on this? What other similar examples have you got that you've catalogued? Going back to your original question about this whole thing of why the whole deaf ears thing has happened in the military, I believe that the problem stems from there is this military pride. We do not want to appear to to our country or to anybody else's so that there is a problem. They know that there is, but they are basically trying to do damage control. Also, there is a good old boy's attitude within the walls of the military, believing that men come first, and not only men, but stronger men. I make that emphasis because sexual assault is not only happening to women, but also to men who are not considered to be the strongest of the strong. And so they are powered over, they are sexually assaulted as well. Uh, many cases, just talking with various people, interviewing people on my blog, reading these uh, particular situations, there is an attitude that is not going to go away because we, we still have this problem within our chain of command where the higher-ups have the power and nothing is affecting them. This particular issue is not affecting them. They think that rape is an incident that happens for a moment, happens for a time, and then eventually the person who has been attacked, they'll get over it and then they will go on and, and live their lives and, you know, and it's all over with. But they don't realize that sexual assault in the military or in society cripples and it breaks and it leaves many broken bodies, and as Jen has said, this affects all of us in the military or in society. And so this is the big dilemma. We have many broken people who are, who are trying to function within society. So I have slept with a loaded 12-gauge shotgun next to my bed ever since I got home. Mm. Wow. Because I know it's silly, because logically and rationally speaking, this individual that forced his way into my room, I'm just going to call him R, um, the letter R. I know that R does not know where I live. I know that R probably doesn't know I'm not in the military anymore, but in the back of my brain, I am terrified of unwanted attention. Adam, if I can kind of jump back in here again and say directly to Jen, I don't believe it is silly because this is what PTSD and and MST does to a survivor. It is one of these issues where your feelings of security are just torn apart. You feel unsafe. There are many people like you who suffer, who are afraid, who live in terror, and this is one of the effects. There is another advocate that I talk to, I tweet uh, from time to time, and I know her story, Kate Weber, and she said for many years, she continually walked around locking the doors rechecking the doors and doing all the things that she could do to feel safe. She took multiple showers just so, you know, because she could feel that feeling of, of being unclean. And so to say it's silly, I mean, no, no, it's not silly. 
This is the thing that many survivors go through. This is the reality and the fallout that comes from that. And the military does not realize that when they do not follow through and get rid of predators and stop predators really from coming into the military, these are the results. They continue to, to destroy people and uh, really just make people um, dysfunctional in just so many ways. And again, it seems like from following stories from people like the Army Times, Military Times, and even some of my military friends that I'm still in touch with, they have this attitude of, well, once they get out, it's no longer our problem. And, and honestly, when they really think that there isn't a problem, then of course there's no incentive to drum out sex offenders. Because... To them, I, you know, I've heard it said that the one thing the army is more terrified of than terrorism is bad press. I and I think that that's completely true. The one thing that the army is more concerned about than defending quote-unquote freedom or defending this country is people making them look bad. They can't stand it. So how widespread they, is this problem? I would say that the word epidemic comes to mind, and I don't think that that is a word that is an overkill. I believe that it has affected many men and women. The The numbers are staggering. Actually, in America alone, 26,000 uh, rapes and sexual assault reports had been given to the Pentagon I am sure that that number could even be closer to to maybe 36 or even 46,000 in reality. It's a problem that it has just gone bad in our in our society and I kind of equate it to a house that you allow critters to nest within the walls of your home and the more you ignore it the more they thrive and the only reason that the military has responded going back to what Jen has said is because a spotlight has been shown on them the media now is looking at this and now at least in my my opinion and I want to give that disclaimer this is my opinion. They are doing something of damage control, but you're talking about an epidemic. You have the problem right here in America that approximately there are 72, maybe even more sexual assaults that happen just within the military itself on a daily basis. 72. And that is, um, that's pretty staggering. I think the only reason that the military this year with, if you've been following the attempt to pass the Military Justice Improvement Act, the only reason that they're even addressing it is because is not because they recognize a problem. They will tell the public whatever they want to hear as long as they eventually shut the hell up and go away about it. So what's the solution? Well, um, I believe that um, going back to what Jen just said about the Military Justice Improvement Act, which, by the way, was designed to take decision-making of prosecuting these sort of crimes out of the chain of command, really is the only way. We have got to have something like that because the military, the top brass, those commanders are not going to lean into this uh, sort of an issue on their own. They, there has been obvious favoritism, and we've seen some of it right today, right within the media, especially with top brass who have gotten off with no more than just a slap on the hand for some of the most heinous things that have happened. So to me, the solution is we have to have a system where survivors, victims, or even people that believe that they are unsafe have got to have a way to get advocacy within the ranks. To me, that's the that's the only way. Jen, what sort of victim support groups are there? When I was still in the Army, there were some organizations that were, well, they said that they were basically there to help, there to listen. There were military family life counselors known as MFLAC. They're basically civilian contracted social workers. That is one option for somebody to go to, although in my personal experience, it didn't pan out very well. Uh, another option, and this is probably going to tweak my fellow secular humanists a little bit, is the chaplain. Chaplains have a tendency to be seen in secular circles as basically preachers in uniform. However, what a lot of people don't understand is that a chaplain has additional duties within a military context other than just providing or being a doorway for religious services for other service members. Chaplains have a capacity to conduct a basic type of counseling, but they are usually not professionally trained psychologists or psychiatrists. 
but they are an avenue for somebody to talk to. And if I had to go back and do it all, if I had to go back in time and if for whatever reason had to experience this again, I would run straight to a chaplain because the post-chaplain where I was deployed was not very helpful. However, once I got to know my unit chaplain, uh, who's also a fellow native New Englander, we got to talking right away and he actually cared about doing his job and cared about doing it right. Something else that they don't tell soldiers at some of these briefings or some of these discussions about sexual assault is that they want you to go through your chain of command to prosecute. But when I was still in the military, at least, and to the best of my knowledge, there is nothing specifically saying that you have to go to your own chain of command to file a report. Technically speaking, one could go from one side of post all the way to the other to a completely different unit and tell somebody there, something happened, I need help, and I don't trust my chain of command to do this. And they can take it up, depending on whether or not they actually do is, well, it's a roll of the dice. But that is another option that they don't like to tell people about because, well, then that means somebody might actually have to do their job and nobody wants to do that. How could the herd mentalists help? What could we do? Where can we go to find more resources? What can we read? In truth, I think the best thing anybody can do, civilian, soldier, or veteran, is keep talking and don't shut up. There's going to be people that want you to shut up and don't. In fact, if anything, my experience has shown, keep talking. Keep bringing this up. Keep being in people's faces within the realm of the law, of course. Keep writing your senators. Keep writing journalists. Keep writing the Army Times or whoever you have to get in touch with to let them know, no, I am not fucking around here. A serious nationwide discussion needs to happen about this because obviously the people in charge don't want to do their jobs. So they are basically leaving it up to the civilian population to make them do it for them. I believe that there are other good agencies out there that are taking up. Uh, they're taking up the cause. They are attempting to help survivors, military survivors, and even their families. The group Protect Our Defenders comes to my mind as, as a group that is not only taking up this cause, but they have some resources to help survivors and even, I believe, some resources that can help them in a judicial sense. But if you go on their website and check them out, and there are others as well out there, um, we're just beginning to get connected through all of this. I think probably one of the things that kind of kicked this whole thing off was seeing the movie The Invisible War. If, if some of your people have not seen this, I would encourage them to rent or buy or see it on YouTube or whatever, because this movie is an eye-opener. And discuss, just like what Jen was saying, people need to get together and talk. They need to begin to talk to each other, write to congressmen and write uh, to senators, and let people know we are concerned this is wrong. There needs to be laws that need to protect uh, people in the military as well as in society. Kevin, what are we aiming towards? What are some of the success stories you've heard so far? Well, there are success stories on a, a local basis for, for people like Bobby Heron, who, well, actually her name is Bobby Mulder, who has gotten some media attention on some of the things that have happened to her in 2014. She has already been able to show people that, that the military is giving lip service to zero tolerance. And she's already began to show people that the military is is not changing. Big success stories, I would honestly have to say I'm none come to my mind right now. I don't know, maybe Jen can think of a couple or, or one or two, but success stories, gosh, if they're out there, they're not they're just not rising to the top right now, probably because of just all the craziness that's going on. So what would make Jen's case a success story in your view? Well, I'm still alive. That's a success. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that the thing that would make Jen's case uh, a success, in my view, is that she is still fighting. She is still talking about this. She is still calling it what it is, as well as other survivors and as well People share stories like this. When I hear stories like this, when I can share, when you can share, Adam, as well, through your program, then more and more people become aware. And I believe that these success stories are getting to our lawmakers in, in Washington. 
I really do believe that the next time around we have a go around at this, we are going to have more and more voices. And even those naysayers that thought like, well, you know, taking the decision, making a chain of command, it didn't seem like such a good idea before, but oh my gosh, look at, look at more and more stories. We are seeing that our military institution is not changing because the dialogue has not stopped about this entire mm. um, issue. When I say, what's the success story going to be? Yes, it's good that Jen's speaking up about it and so forth, but this process could last an indefinite amount of time. What's right. the outcome? What would be the best outcome for Jen? The uh, the best case scenario or, well, that that we have a law, that, that, that we have an effective law and that we have effective uh, people within leadership or advocacy that have the power to do these, you know, to do these things to stop this. And not not only that, but also I would say that stories like Jen's have to be told because I would like to see, if I'm not getting off topic here, ways that we can assess who these people are before they get to a recruiter's office. Or, you know, there's got to be a way that these rapists or are able to uh, be vetted so that we know that we're not getting this type of person within the military to begin with. So I think a good success story for Jen and for a lot of people like them is that we begin, to, that we kick these guys out of the military and not only that, that they're registered sex offenders. And also the other thing is, is that we're not throwing our military people out on their ear, labeling them a medical, medical problems. In my personal opinion, um, I would agree that there's no real vetting process to speak of in the recruiting campaigns to weed out. Um, yes, they do a background check for a criminal record to see if you're already a sex offender, sure, but there's no real screening process to speak of to weed out who has this sort of predatory mentality, who has this power complex, you know, to stop more potential ours from putting on a uniform and representing this country while committing acts of brutality and harassment against other people. And I think that that's something that definitely needs to change. The thing that really boggles my mind, Adam, is how an institution such as the military institution can regard an issue like this as being less than important. Are there any other topics you'd like to cover, either of you? Well, just a thought about the entire situation. Not long after I got home from Iraq, I joined a uh, like a forum discussion group on Facebook, a Female Soldiers Association, I believe is the name of the page. I could be wrong. And they do anonymous advice columns. One female soldier wrote in from Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, at first I thought I wrote it and forgot about it. Almost exactly everything that I went through, like from the... Someone forcing themselves in her room and assaulting her and the harassment and the questions and the asking about diseases, almost everything. And that's when it really hit me that what had actually gone on. When we are endorsing and praising a system that does to its own people what we complain about the Taliban doing to theirs, what exactly are we defending? What exactly are we standing up for? We're just doing the same things they are to a point. We're all just wearing the same clothes. Valid point. Very well. Kevin, what's the link to your blog? Where can we find out more? The link to my blog would be Kevin McGill with one L dot blogspot.com. And it's called the Invisible Warrior Report. So not only can they see the current one, but they can also read back issues as well. Fantastic. Jen, have you got anything you'd like to promote? Um, Two things. Earlier, you mentioned support groups and projects. I would like to let listeners know about something called the 26,000 Letters Project. It's believed, I believe in 2012, 26,000 sexual assaults were reported within the military. I don't remember how many were prosecuted, but it was extremely low. So oh. if any of you, if anyone, military or civilian, uh, listening to this, do a search on the internet for the 26,000 Letters Project. It is a group of women who are collecting information about when the assault happened, when you served, whether or not you were deployed, and they are compiling one large project all together. They would be an excellent group of people to get in touch with. And also, I'd like to plug my own blog, which is happyheresy, all one word, dot blogspot.com. 
Thank you very much. Listeners, go and check it out. Kevin and Jen, thank you very much for coming on the show. And please do keep in touch. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Thank you again for having us, Adam. I appreciate it. occasionally suffer from bouts of rationality, cognizance, and literacy? Are you constantly baffled by the failure of your fellow hominids to comprehend simple principles like evidence, statistical significance, confirmation bias, and logic? Do your jaws ache from constantly holding your tongue in polite company? Do you find yourself tempted to stand on tables and scream, the Bible also says rabbits chew their cud? That's not an allegory, and I'm not reading it out of context, you frothing nincompoops. It's just wrong! Well, then we have the book for you. The Scathing Atheist presents Diatribes, Volume 1, 50 Essays from a Godless Misanthrope. This collection of epic rants was painstakingly chosen as the 50 best diatribes presented on the Scathing Atheist podcast out of the first 50. It's as effective against headaches as homeopathy, as accurate at predicting the future as astrology, more powerful than a power band bracelet, more efficient than a dousing rod, and more potent than prayer. So look for it at an online ebook retailer near you or find it at scathingatheist.com. Diatribes, Volume 1, 50 Essays from a Godless Misanthrope by No Illusions. Claims in this ad have not been evaluated by the FDA. Ebooks may be harmful or fatal if swallowed. If you experience an erection lasting more than four hours, you must be doing something right. Radio down the line with me, I have at Denny Smith 45, D E W N Y S M I T H 45. Denny, how are you, sir? I'm very good, and uh, thank you. And Adam, thank you for having me on the herd mentality. I'm honored. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Now, where are you based? I'm based in Wisconsin, USA. Fantastic. You've got a little freebie, a little giveaway for listeners of the show and indeed for people who aren't listening to this. Absolutely. And uh, be- before we get into that uh, description of the book, uh, would you indulge me and let me see, give a shout out to a very good friend of mine from Please Twitter do. in Australia? Mm-hmm. This is the first atheist I ever followed on Twitter and to this day remains my favorite. And that would be your own Emmy Jewel. That's E-M-M-Y Jewel. Mm-hmm. Great mind, great heart. And if she's listening, a big hello from Denny, and uh, don't you ever change. She's a good one, and I, I, I thank you for letting me say that. Pleasure. Rightio. So your little project that you've had on the boil. I decided to create a book. And, and first, the most important thing about it is it's free. That's capital F-R-E-E. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a collection of 450 tweets sandwiched between commentary that I had authored. Um, of the 450, there are about three, and only three, I think, from atheists. You know, so that's less than one half of one percent of the tweets are from atheists. Everything is basically theist tweet. It was collected by myself and a number of atheist contributors. And a side note, uh, we were talking the other day, I, one of the contributors called me a few weeks ago during compilation and editing and he said, geez, you know, is Ra going to be in this book? Well, I said back, you don't write a book about theist lunacy without having Ra in it. That, that would be like writing a book about the Catholic Church and forgetting to mention that they have something called a pope. You know, of course, Roz and it, Emmys, and there's a lot of a lot of atheists you might recognize that are in that. That makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so th- let me ask you this: When you think about Twitter and just Twitter, forget about the other social networking sites. What's the number one bitch about Twitter from tweeters? What's the thing they most complain about? Character limits. Exactly. And the reason we chose Twitter over all those social networking sites is, be- is because of the character limit. I think that is gold for the atheist community, and here's why. In every single tweet in that book and every single theist tweet that I see on Twitter, the character limit invariably forces the theist to reduce their really broad delusion down to a condensed mass of seething insanity. I mean, it's just a nugget of craziness, if you will, and far more likely to be read than these smokes and circular reasonings you see in the other sites. So I think that's a very big plus for Twitter. And that's why I chose it. And the other thing we did with the book, or I did with the book, was this. If you think uh, the human species, we're a visual type species. We, we're born, we can see things, right? Mm-hmm. We're not born to read. We have to learn how to read, and that's a little bit harder. So you go to Marketing 101, a picture is a thousand words. So we, I decided to take screen caps or JPEG pictures of these tweets, Right. Make a picture graphic. And it was my hope, very manipulating, to uh, entice, you know, to lure the young, unsuspecting, innocent atheist into actually reading that insanity nugget when he saw the picture. And the jury's out. I, 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 certainly the character limit has been proven to, uh, to reduce the, uh, the delusion into an insanity nugget. But whether or not the, the, the JPEG really grabs them is still up for grabs. It's, it's 50-50. I think it does. I hope it does. And if it doesn't, well, you know, I wasted a lot of good dope is what, what would happen there. Anyway, we started out, or I started out, the book as a serious endeavor, but uh, it immediately turned into a Coen Brothers film. Are you familiar with the Coen Brothers' work yes. over there? Yes. Yeah, high comedy. And uh, you would think that I would have realized that if you put a bunch of theist tweets together, it would immediately turn into a Coen Brothers film, kind of a dumb moment. 
And at any rate, what I thought I'd do to, to illustrate the book is just read three tweets, if you'll permit me to do that. Go for it. And let, and let your listeners consider what they were. The first one I chose uh, for this podcast on, on the herd mentality is actually one of the three atheists. And I think when I read it, you'll understand why I chose it. It's Lord Cropes. He's in either the UK or the continent. I don't remember where. And this is what he says. Quote, I was an atheist at age eight, started drinking at nine, smoked a dope at 10, and on heroin by 11. Could be worse. Could be Christian. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the first time I saw that, I'm pretty certain I soiled myself. It was just, I had to include that in the book. Okay, here's the second tweet. This becomes more revealing than funny. In this, in this tweet, it's a conversation between an atheist and a pastor. He is a leader of the church, and they're talking about pedophilia, the child raping by clergy, and that is by no means restricted to the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of them are doing this, or as Rob would call it, ass-raping children. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll spare the listeners the uh, entire conversation, but I want to read the last sentence of the last tweet from this pastor. And remember, bear in mind, we're talking about sexually sodomizing a child. This is what he says. In heaven, the victim will be glad to meet his former rapist, perfectly holy and happy in Christ, unquote. And can you believe that? I was about to have a go at you for pulling something out of context, but in no context is that cool. No, there is no context at all that that would be acceptable. And I think this is a great way to, to, to example of how Twitter with that 140 character limit forces a pastor or any theist to reduce it down to the logical endpoint that becomes a little golden nugget of insanity. I, I mean, it's just it's incredible. Hmm. Anyway, let me let me give you this last one, Adam. This is a while we're talking on the podcast. I'm looking at a tweet. This is from a. I'm looking at her AVI, her picture. It's a young teen, stereotypical. She's clean scrubbed, fresh faced, innocent teen. Mm-hmm. Sunshine in the background, that dreamy look that comes over them when they're in love with Jesus or Muhammad or Flavor du Jour. Now, we all know the type. She's that, the one that sits in the front pew on Sunday and gazes up at the pastor beatifically as he skins the rubes of every dime they've got. You know, one of those types. Uh-huh. So here are three tweets in this little conversation, uh, one, one or two sentences for tweet. In the first one, this sweet, young, innocent thing, with very little experience apparently, attempts to set up the atheist. Here is her quote. What chapter and verse is this? I am interested to read it because I can't comment since I haven't yet read that part. The atheist he's talking to is Maud, a woman you'll meet in the book. She takes 30 seconds and she responds this way. Women who aren't virgins on their wedding night must be killed. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 20 through 21. Suddenly there's dead silence for about five to six minutes, and you know, you just know that this young, innocent theist is trying to figure out a way to get out of this. He's just been owned. Here's what she comes back with, and I quote, I'm glad you have taken such an interest in the Bible, but I have to go now. Bye-bye, and I hope you have a good day. Well, she runs away, and we, we've never seen her again. Her body was never recovered, you know, one of these mm-hmm. things. Now, the reason we chose to put that in the book, or I chose to put that in the book, was twofold. I mean, it is kind of funny but to see someone get old like that, but what really is happening there is it underscores it, the obvious and widely known fact that atheists typically understand the Bible better than uh, their theist counterparts. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the last stat I saw was a theist. I think 10% of theists have actually read the Bible. 90%, if not, I think that's inverse when you talk about atheists. The second thing that that tweet scores uh, for me, anyways, is that in, to my theist friends, I would say this: if you're going to challenge an atheist with Bible nonsense, that is the precise equivalent of, of bleeding near a shark. It, it's going to be capitalized on, and it's going to be capitalized on immediately. I think a very telling, uh, very telling tweet. At any rate, uh, madam, those are the examples, some of the tweets you find in the book. It's interesting bathroom reading or, or tavern reading, so I, I certainly encourage your folks to uh, give it a shot, download it. I, I would want to remind them that if you are going to use a mobile device, either a phone or a tablet, they have a mobile app on that website that's free of charge for both Apple and Android. And Download the mobile app in a couple seconds and you're in business. Fantastic. So where can we find the book? Well, the easiest thing, if you want, I'll resend you the uh, the download link mm-hmm. um, after we're done here. And if they want to, they can tweet me with something that says book in the title. They don't have to follow me. Just send me a tweet that says book and bang, I'll pop it out to you. And uh, it's hoping maybe if on your end, if you would put that on your website so they can grab it from there too. Either way, it doesn't make any difference. What I'll do is I'll drag it out, put it in the show notes of this episode and... By all means, guys, go and get your hands on a copy. It sounds like fun. It is fun. Adam, once again, thank you for hosting me this morning. I appreciate it. And a great weekend to everybody. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Denny. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
And down the line with me from somewhere in the north of England, I've got Noel McGiven, who goes by the Twitter handle at good underscore beard. And I've seen your profile pic, your avi. It is indeed a good beard. Hello, Noel. Thank you very much. Hello, Adam. (laughs) Now, you've written a wonderful book, and you're very kind to send me a copy of it. It's called Freedom from Religion. I've had a read. Your style is wonderful. And I think it's a a wonderful achievement to have made, given that you're quite open about being mildly dyslexic and uh, the challenges that were involved in writing that must have been significant. What's a little bit of background there? Oh, well, I think the background of that is is actually in the book. I went to a Catholic school where, uh, which was quite a well-connected sort of Catholic school, but they used to teach me Latin by rote. So basically you go a mo, a mas, a mat, a mamas, and when you when you couldn't get the amat out, you'd be strapped, mm. and the strap was a basically a, a leather strap which was brought down with great force upon your hands. Now, basically, as a as a child, that was how they treated my dyslexia. I was basically punished for it. I was punished and derided for it. Though I was intelligent enough to get into university, I got into university because I had an ability to put together a really coherent argument. And fortunately, when I came to A-levels, which was the in Britain was the, the pre-university exam, I did subjects which were history and politics, which, which which required argument. And I put together good enough arguments to get good enough grades to get into university. So in some ways, it wasn't like my dyslexia totally handicapped my education. It just makes me a little slower at reading, And it means that if I write a sentence, I have to correct it. I find I make mistakes. I put the wrong word in or I miss words out. It's not that I can't even, it's not even that I can't spell. I tend to be more likely to just put in the wrong word. Mm. And it's that gap between the thought and the automotive function of writing, which I think is is best describes dyslexia. And in fact, a lot of very brilliant writers have been dyslexic. I mean, I, I think, for mm. instance, immediately of somebody like William Faulkner. Yeah, it's not, it's, um, not, it's not associated with intelligence at all. No, mm. no. Uh, I would say it's more associated with the automotor function. That is the, um, and what people think of as the left and right side of the brain, but it isn't as simple. That's actually a bit of a myth, the left and right side of the brain idea, but that there are different aspects of the brain that don't quite connect sometimes. So, when I'm thinking about something to say and I'm writing it, those two are slightly out of sync sometimes. Mm. Just one little point. I mean, English is hard enough <laughs> just as a language. I, I can imagine that trying to learn Latin with dyslexia or slystexia even would be <laughs> even more challenging. One of the points that you raise in the book, that's just I, I took a screenshot of it because I've been reading it on my iPad. One of the sentences in here at the end of one of the chapters is, While many are introduced to a religion without either their knowledge or their consent, the rejection of a religion is best done by informed consent and as a free and intelligent decision. This contrasts sharply with the approach of most religions. When you were at school, they tried to beat religion into you, but at the same time were sort of beating it out of you. (laughs) That's exactly. They tended to more actively try and beat Latin into me than religion, to be fair. But ironically, the Latin teacher at one stage also taught religion. And so I used to sit there in, uh, when he was teaching religion thinking, well, well, what's this about? You know, he's, he, he'd sit there in, in the religion class saying about the God of love. And then in the Latin class, he'd show how forgiving this God was by beating me for something which I simply couldn't do. Now, that, that to me was one of the things that made me, caused me to reject Catholicism. But I didn't just reject Catholicism, but through a process of things slightly later in my life, I went through a long period of looking and searching for spirituality, really until until my early 40s. And much of the book is examines my search for spirituality and examines why I found that search to be empty mm. and why things such as spirit, what would people call spiritual experiences or even near-death experiences or any of the, a lot of these things which people rely on in religion, it is why these things were shown to be, in fact, flawed and empty and why the case for them cannot be made. 
You have high standards of evidence. No, I don't have high standards of evidence. I simply want evidence. I mean, I often say, if somebody, for instance, tells me, well, what evidence would you need for God, right? Mm -hmm. I will give them a very simple thing. I will say, look, if I take a coin, I hold it between my fingers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, assuming I'm in the Earth's gravity, and I separate my fingers, it will fall, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't need to be an expert in gravity. You know, I don't need to understand the physics of gravity. But I can simply say that if I do that, the coin will fall, right? Mm -hmm. And I can repeat that time and again, as long as I'm in the Earth's gravity. What I say to people with religious beliefs is, you do not even have that much evidence for God. <laughs> you know, you can't actually show something as simple as that as evidence for God. So that's not a very high standard. That's only the standard of letting a coin drop. Hmm. And a fine argument indeed. Another famous podcaster who does a, a far better show than this one, he's called No Illusions. That question comes up often. What are your standards for God? And, and my standards are, are really, really high. He leans a little towards what you were saying. It doesn't need to be high. It just needs to be something. That's and, right, yeah. and you cover off in this book so many different topics, such as that one. Uh, you cover off things like um, gay marriage and how well, the Bible actually gives us a David little bit Jonathan. of a... Yeah, with Jonathan. David and the story of David and Jonathan, which it's very difficult to not see that as a gay relationship if we actually look at it, particularly when it says they loved each other more than women. And the Bible quite specifically says this. That's you know, and you think, well, what does that mean? <laughs> oh? 2 Samuel one twenty six. The passage yeah. that we're actually referring to is, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of a woman. Mm. Exactly. But it's I in mean, the so Old Testament, so we can disregard that, I'm, I'm told. Well, no, that's a very interesting <laughs> question. I love that, that point, that we can disregard the Old Testament. And the reason why I think that's an absurdity is because the authority that is given for Jesus being Christ in the New Testament all comes from the Old Testament. For instance, love thy neighbor as thyself comes from the Old Testament. If you look at the argument given by Jesus, when he's arguing against people, again and again, he uses the Old Testament as evidence for his his argument. And hmm. I mean, there's the idea that I, I come not to destroy the law, but to build it again. Hmm. Again, he's, he's saying, look, I totally accept the law of the Old Testament. The other way I, I like to put this is, what are people saying? Are they saying that the God has a personality change, you know, does he go to sort of uh, Tarrant's Anonymous between the Old Testament and the New Testament? You know, is there suddenly a different God between these two Testaments? It just doesn't stack up. It's almost like there was an evolutionary step in the people of the time in terms of morality. Do you know what it's almost like, Adam? Almost like religion developed over time because people's thinking changed. Now, there's a thought. People's <laughs> Thinking changed because it was always people's thinking. Because when you had the, the nomadic people in the desert who were basically nomadic warriors running around the desert, if you look at the Old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly at the time of Moses, they are constantly at war, right? Mm -hmm. They have a set of morality. They have an idea of thou shalt not kill. But their idea of thou shalt not kill only actually applies to themselves because they're quite happy to kill other people. They're quite happy to kill people. The passage that comes to my mind is from Numbers 31. Well, no, and I actually have in front of me, so I'll read a little bit of this because mm -hmm. it is it is so shocking, really. It's unbelievably shocking, this. And Moses was angry with the officers of the, of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from the service of the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incidents of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and it was incredible lines, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has no one man by lying with him but all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves now that's numbers 31 14 to 18 and i mean that is a war crime there is absolutely no way you could describe this as anything else that is the use of 
rape as a weapon of war, given this message to other, other tribes around, if you defy us, we will not just kill everyone. We will keep your young daughters, who were probably girls in their early teens, alive, and we'll keep them alive for ourselves. And, you know, we know exactly what that means. Mm. We don't live in a, in a time, you know, maybe, maybe 50 years ago when people didn't acknowledge the idea of what actually happens in wars and didn't acknowledge rape as a weapon of war, people could have had the excuse of, oh, well, maybe they were just keeping these young, young women to look after them. Mm. Or whatever. So by today's standards, yeah. what do you think would happen? Today, by today's standards, I think Moses should, would be in the Hague accused of war crimes. Simple if he was that. caught. If he was caught. You know? Yeah. Mm. But I mean, if you, if you think about it also, some of the excuses that Christians make for this, like, for instance, oh, well, these young girls would have been married to some of the men who captured them. Oh, that's okay then. And, well, that's okay. Because, frankly, young women really want to marry the men who've murdered their entire families. I mean, that's quite a normal thing for a young woman to want to do, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that's, a, that's the stupidity of that argument. Imagining these young women would want to marry the men who'd done this to them. It, to me, shows the moral bankruptcy at the heart of the Bible. And we've got to remember who we're talking about. We're talking about Moses. Mm. And Moses is again and again cited as the man who gave what what is often considered by Christians to be the most the Ten Commandments, the most important moral laws. Mm. So, you know, where did these moral laws come from? They came from somebody who was the equivalent of Hitler or Paul Potter, you know, some terrible tyrant. I mean, Moses wasn't some nice man, though he, he's depicted as a nice man with a beard and, you know, but he wasn't <laughs> some nice, pleasant man. He was a war leader mm. and he was the most ruthless war ma- leader you could possibly find. There are people in Christianity who will justify this. I mean, one of the people I can think of and who I quote in my book is William Lane Craig. There we go. He says those doing wrong in commanding the destruction of God were the, in this case he's talking about the, the Canaanites, you know, that it was entirely justified to kill them all because they had defied God in some way. Now, that argument is exactly the same argument as, for instance, the 9-11 terrorists mm-hmm. who uh, justified their acts as an act which was following the command of their God. Mm-hmm. Now, no reasonable person in our society justifies killing in the name of God. This is why yeah. we're fortunate that William Lane Craig is not a military leader. Yes, well, we are. <laughs> he, he has this argument that everything begins with God, and therefore, if everything begins with God, God's entitled to do whatever he, he can with his creation. This is really the fundamental problem with religious fanaticism, is that if religious fanaticism made people incredibly loving, then I might not agree with religion, but I wouldn't have a, oh, I wouldn't have that big an argument against it. I would just think, well, that's fine. But the problem is that the reality is that again and again, religious fanaticism leads to terrible violence. Let's drag it back a little to sex abuse and not sex abuse from yeah. the Bible. It's something a little bit more modern. You talk a bit, in fact, quite a bit about sex abuse in your community. Right, when I was growing up as a child, mm. uh, what I do give an account of is the fact that I knew a priest who was a child abuser. I mean, this is really probably the most painful thing I, uh, for me to write in the book uh, because I knew some of the victims. My condemnation of the Catholic Church isn't that it has paedophiles in it because any organization c- could have paedophiles in it. My condemnation of the Catholic Church is that they so actively sought to protect some of these people. He wasn't the only example of this. I give the example, I give case studies of two priests, and in both cases, their their superiors allowed them to move from one legal jurisdiction to the other, in this case from Northern Ireland to the Irish Republic, so in effect fleeing it. But in the case of, of Joe Steele, the priest I knew, the, the, the really terrible, terrible thing about him was there was a family of, well, three girls and a boy in it, but and he abused, I think, three girls and a boy in his family. And when he, when they sort of were into this, the, the eldest of them were into their early 20s, he moved from the parish he was in, and they went to see him in the new parish, and in front of his congregation, they confronted him with what he'd done. Now, the reason for doing so wasn't, wasn't malice, it was because they just didn't want him 
to have anything to do with children and they wanted to prevent anybody else being damaged in the way they were damaged. And the response of the Catholic Church, the response of his superiors, was to immediately send him to Dublin, which meant he was into a different legal jurisdiction. Then he was put into, he went to, he was a, a member of a, a sort of a, a religious order. And the religious order obviously didn't know what to do with him. And in some which I, I find incredible moral, moral bankruptcy. So what they decided to do was they sent him to a parish in England. And he went there. And five years later, one of the girls in that family tracked him down, basically, in this parish. And she reported him. And then he went back to Dublin. And from there he went back and was arrested by the police. And eventually he was imprisoned. But it's, it's the incredible, what really sort of angers me about the Catholic Church is the fact that they were willing to go to the length to protect this man when there were people, I mean, I can sort of, in my mind, I can see some of these girls when they were young, like when I knew them, and the courage it must, an incredible courage it must have taken of, the, of those young women to actually stand and confront him in the way they did. I mean, it was one of the most courageous things I could think of to actually do that because, you know, something like uh, child abuse, it's so embarrassing, it's so humiliating and, and yet yet to, to, to actually confront them in that way. And instead of getting support they should, they are entitled to from the Catholic Church, he was allowed and encouraged to basically flee the country. Now, that is moral bankruptcy of the most serious type. Mm. There's currently a royal commission into the Catholic Church in Australia, and yeah. the number three in the Vatican at, at present, Cardinal George Pell, was Australia's oh, yeah. highest Catholic, and yeah. uh, he escorted a pedophile to court for yeah. support. He yeah. was incredibly dismissive of victims coming to the church. Yes. I've been oh, watching, I can understand it, yeah. I've been watching this case like a hawk. Yeah. And really what kicked it off for me, and your, your book was sort of the icing on the cake, that chapter. There was a, an entire yeah. book I read by Patricia. Her name escapes me just at the moment, but it's called Holy Hell. And yeah. it covers off the entire saga of her family and the impact a priest had on it as he abused one of her sons for a period of years to the point where the, this boy now he's grown up suffered from alcoholism drug abuse unable to find a steady relationship confused sexually and all of this was taken away from him by a priest called finnegan egan and he yeah. was moved in exactly the same way you describe and even moved from jurisdiction to jurisdiction yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah i mean one of the things i can think about there's also this 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 priest uh, joseph Steele. he was the popular priest Mm. He was the priest. Everybody liked him, you know. He was a friendly one. He started this. I mean, he did the things which actually, when, when hindsight, you look back and you think, my God, why did you do those things? For instance, he started the gym club for the kids, right? Mm -hmm. I used to weight train in that club, right? Yeah, you discussed this and, in the book. And when I was 50, and the, the old, I mean, one of the boys, he's, he later came out that he molested, was he, mostly he molested girls, but he, he did molest a boy as old as 15. You know, after my mother died, I wasn't going through a terrible crisis in my life for all sorts of reasons. And I can recall this time when I actually went to his house for, because I just desperately needed someone to talk to. And, you know, I'd been a member of a sort of gym club and he was, he was like somebody who I thought I could speak to. And I thought, well, obviously he's, he, he's a priest, so I could trust him. Now, he didn't molest me, but when I look back on it, I think, my God, how vulnerable I was, you know? Mm. You know, how vulnerable I personally could have been to that man. I'm not I'm not a sort of big sort of bloke or anything, but I, I had been weight training at the time. I reckon he may have been a little more cautious cause, because physically I could have probably handled myself a little bit with him at the time. But it's just the, the horror of the responsibility that, that people like that had I mean, in some way, paedophilia is an illness or whatever they call it, I don't care. But the real thing I really condemn is the Catholic Church because they knew about it and they protected them and they moved them again and again. I mean, the other case was uh, Brendan, a father of Brendan Smith I talked about. He was moved for years and years and they knew about it. And in the case of Brendan Smith, in fact, the current cardinal, Irish cardinal, whose name, name for a second going out of my head, he was involved at the, he was the cardinal at the time, he was the bishop's secretary at the time, and he was involved in swearing some of his victims to secrecy. Mm. Now, the excuse that the Catholic Church made at the time was they wanted to protect the integrity of the, of the inquiry, 
But the reality is they protected the Catholic Church. Mm. And that was and that was always the priority that they protected the, the Catholic Church. Oh, and the name I'm thinking of is, is Cardinal Sean Brady, right? Right. And that's name these people to be honest. We should name these people. Yeah. Cardinal and he's still he's still a cardinal at the moment. I believe he's due to retire, but he's still a cardinal at the moment, Sean Brady. And he this is something he's admitted to that he was involved in swearing this these boys to secrecy who'd been molested. Look, he's still he's still a cardinal. All this this talk about this this new Pope Francis reforming things, but he's still got people like him and Pell in in positions and he's done nothing about them. Mm. It's as simple as that. It's almost modernising the church with a new coat of paint. Really, yeah. the foundations haven't changed whatsoever. I'm incredibly critical of the Pope and make a point of replying to the Pope's tweets on Twitter. There's about a bajillion topics that we could cover off from your yeah. book because every chapter sort of covers off something different and yeah. nails a different point in a different way. I think it's a wonderful read. I have a copy that you very kindly arranged to send to me, a copy of Freedom from Religion, and you've endorsed me in defiling your work with a picture of a cow. And to... Oh, that's ter a terrible <laughs> thing to do, but I'll let you away with it. And uh, this one will be being sent to one of the tithers who supports the show, and that person I... is Jeffrey from Virginia in the US. I assume that's what VA stands for. So, Jeffrey, it'll be in the post to you later today, and thank you very much for helping support the show make these sort of things possible. So, Noel, where can we get a copy of your book? Well, I mean, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon uh, just about everywhere. That's probably your easiest way to get a co copy of it. If you want a copy of the book or you want a Kindle, go to Amazon. If you want another ebook version, then actually you're best contacting exlibris.com. They can provide basically a copy for, for any format. Mm -hmm. That's XLIB. RIS.com. Yes. Fantastic. Noel, I'll have to get you on again because there's so many different topics that you're well versed in and have written about at length. We're pushed for time today, but I thank you very much for coming on. We'd love to have you back another time. I'd be very happy to come back. Okay, thank you very much, Adam. All the best. <laughs>